1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, a co-host of the New Book Network's New Books in Popular Culture, and I'm here today with Jack Hamilton, author of *Just Around Midnight: Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination*. Thanks for being here, Jack.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca.
1: Great. I'd like to start out by having you just sort of share a little bit about what brought you to this topic, what got you interested in it, and what got you started on this book.
0: Um, sure. So it's actually it's it's uh, it's it's quite a or a long story, or at least a story that goes back a long way. Um, I, I first really became interested in this subject uh, really from being a musician. Uh, I started playing piano piano uh, when I was about six years old, uh, and then when I was in high school, I was in a lot of uh, bands, and then I actually spent a number of years in my late teens and early 20s being as a full-time professional musician. Um, and so I just spent a lot of time around musicians and Um, and the bands that I was in were mostly, uh, like blues and R and B bands. I wasn't really in rock bands. Um, so I was playing forms of music that, uh, for the, at the time that I was playing them, which was, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, it was somewhat unusual for a young, uh, white person like myself to be playing them. Uh, and, uh, It was um and so that was like an interesting and I, I had like just such a wonderful time in those years and met so many interesting people but it it it, it made me kind of interested in the way that we think about um, the sort of intersection of musical identity or sorry racial identity and sort of kinds of music, you know what types of what 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 types of people we expect to play different types of music um like, certainly something I would encounter pretty frequently during those years was people asking, you know, well, why aren't you in a rock band? Um, and uh, that was always sort of interesting to me because I, I knew, obviously, in, even in those days, I was like, well, you know, rock is actually not originally a white music. <laughs> um, it's sort of a – it was always a strange question to field. Um, but uh, – and then when I actually – after that, um, I went back to college after, after those years and then started – uh, working as a music journalist, um, and music critic, which, uh, and that was a really, um, important experience for me as well in terms of thinking about the way that writing about music sort of structures the way people listen to it and the Mm -hmm. way that, that, and the role that critics and, and journalists have played over the years in sort of the, um, the reception of popular music, the way the history of popular music has been told, um, and so I, like, that was something I was always interested in too from those years, was sort of the, the role of, of music critics, um, and you know, kind of the rise of, of rock criticism and how, how influential, uh, form that, that, that has been, um, and so then, when I ed- ultimately ended up in graduate school, um, which was sort of i kind of came to as a refugee from journalism as 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 quite a few people <laughs> do um, <laughs> uh, that you know I knew I wanted to write about music, um, and it all sort of so those two interests kind of came together and uh, and particularly around the 1960s which struck me as a, a period where there was a lot of um, uh rupture in terms of sort of like the ways people had thought about what types of music black and white people were supposed to be making there was a lot of um just a tremendous amount of fluidity in that decade and just a lot of uh really interesting things happening in the world of popular music and then by the end of the decade uh the, the music has really kind of resegregated itself and you have what rock music as, as sort of seen as a, um, as a really overwhelmingly white form and something that really that is thought of as something that just white people do. Um, and then, you know, and, and concurrent to that is actually the rise of, uh, of, of rock criticism as a serious form um, and just a huge amount of really influential writing in that period.
1: Right. And so you start out with your book with this idea that you're going to tell two stories, right? The story of the audience and sort of what's going on with the audience in the discourse, but also the music itself and the role of the artist and performers. And I really appreciated that angle. Um, I think that's really important. And when you were talking about sort of rock criticism, that idea of myth making and how we create these sort of mythologies and larger than life images in rock, So could you talk a little bit about why you, why you wanted to tell both of those stories and how you sort of weave that together?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think that, like, you know, I think in some ways, uh, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, you know, a lot of the music that I write about is incredibly famous and stuff that everyone, a (laughs) lot of people know, you know, and we think we know really well. Um, and yet at the same time, there has been a lot of sort of received wisdom that's been passed down about it. Um, and so one of the things that I wanted to do was was sort of uh, push at the received wisdom and write, you know, I don't want to say necessarily a revisionist history or something like that, but sort of like, well, where where, you know, where do we find these ideas emerging, like, you know, some of these standard stories of rock history that, like, you know, um, Dylan goes electric and nothing is the same. <laughs> or you know, the Beatles make Sergeant Pepper and nothing is the same. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was sort of like, you know, I'd always found those uh, stories somewhat suspicious. Um, and you know, and I, you know, I understand why to writers they're very appealing. I think as as writers, writers are always. Uh, particularly, critics are always looking for turning points and you know um, moments of sort of epochal significance. I'm certainly guilty of that sometimes myself. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like just the way that um, I, I, w- I was interested in some of these the sort of myths of of the '60s, um, and and '60s music is just such a such a mythic decade in a lot right. of ways. Um, but at the same time, you know, I didn't want to tell a uh, I didn't want to like not I didn't want to make it seem like I was like throwing those artists themselves under the bus. Like, it's like, you know, it's like, I don't think that, um, you know, it's like, I really love the Beatles music. Like the Beatles are really great. Right. But
1: there's, yeah, they're still complicated, but they're great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) You know, it's like, and so it's like, I I didn't want to write a, a, you know, a book that just seemed like I was just throwing out all this Music, So I I sort of decided to, yeah, like, you know, it's like, well, what happens if we just sort of try to hear this music in different ways? Then, you know, rather than saying like, oh, you know, rather than trying to reconstruct some sort of alternative canon of 60s music, you know, um, which would be, you know, which in a lot of ways is a a worthwhile venture. But at the same time, like that canon has been extremely powerful. Um, So in some ways, like to construct an alternative canon of that, of that music is to write about something slightly different than what's been passed down. You know, like, it's like, I mean, to try to write, a history of 60s rock music without writing about the the Beatles or the Stones or Dylan or Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix or something like while that could certainly be done i think that that was a different project than than what i was interested in um and it was sort of like trying to get at other stories and again like sort of a more a more interracial uh less sort of a more interracial story that's less confined by uh the genre constructions that have sort of informed the way that, um, that we've come to think about that, that decade.
1: Right. Yeah. I really appreciate You said at the beginning that your goal is to help you hear music better. Mm -hmm. Right. So that idea of really thinking about what you're listening to and how it's ingrained. I've had this discussion with a lot of people about the, that you talk about the whitening of rock. Right. Mm -hmm. And that it's like, we either just don't talk about it or African-Americans are self-segregating, or there's this idea of theft. And we don't look at the complexities of that a lot often in those conversations, mm-hmm. right? It's like either, you know, Elvis stole all the music and that's it. Or there's this, like, we're going to either listen to, like, one, you know, we're going to listen to the Stones and the Beatles, or we're going to listen to more of that R&B. And you sort of yeah. model that. So could you talk a little bit about that idea of sort of the whitening of rock as well?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, so this is one of the things, I mean, that's really, that is in a lot of ways the central concern of my, of my book. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the ways I put this sort of in the opening pages is that by, you know, by the time Jimi Hendrix died in 1970, um, a lot of his obituaries thought it was totally remarkable that he was a black man playing electric rock guitar in a way that no one thought was remarkable when Chuck Berry was doing the same thing just 10 years earlier. And so what accounts for that shift? Like what makes by the end of the, by the end of the sixties, Hendrix is seen as, as, as totally exceptional and weird because of the, um, the combination of his racial and musical identity. Um, and yeah, and also why, why this shift happens in this decade that I think is really marked by this enormous amount of sort of, Um, commercial interracial commercial crossover aesthetic exchange uh, just sort of there was so much Mixing going on in, in music in this period, you know, thinking about things like Motown records and and sort of the, how integrated Southern soul was, um, you know, places like Stax and Muscle Shoals, um, and then certainly, you know, the the huge importance of groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who were you know white British bands, but who had been who were really steeped in African American music and sort of contemporary African American pop music. And really saw themselves as in conversation with and deeply indebted to um, a lot of those those musicians and those types of music um, and then you know, but by the end of the decade there's been this sort of resorting that's that's happened um and yeah, that was like i mean one of the so one of the things I was trying to um accomplish with my book was sort of figure out, yeah, how does that happen? you know like does that happen because of yeah, you know, like, it's like there's been different ways that this has been discussed. Like, one way is, um, you know, saying that, oh, put kind of putting the burden on R&B music and saying, well, you know, as the 60s progressed, R&B music becomes more and more um, sort of uh, reflective of Black cultural nationalist discourses, and it's sort of moving away from, from, from quote-unquote white music or white audiences. I don't really think that that's true. I think it's true with some artists, but mm-hmm. for the most part, like you know, the kind of the specific, the kind of political commitments of specific artists were really varied, you know, right. like, and, it was, and, and this wasn't something that, um, and for a lot of, of black artists, like it also, there's just, there's an economic element of that explanation that doesn't really make sense. You know, it's like that, I think, you know, for a lot of uh, musicians, you know, the first goal of, of their music is to, outside of, you know, self expression is is you know popular musicians they want people to buy their records you know right. like it's like and so and there was a real <laughs> material uh, loss that was happening when you know um, as some of those artists started to see their sales drop with audiences that had previously been been buying their music very enthusiastically. Um, and then, yeah, you know, this side, the other side that um, you, you sort of mentioned is like this. there's been a real denialism of this kind of thing in rock music, um, uh, you know, this sort of an aversion to having conversations about race. And I think that some of that is because, you know, that sometimes these conversations get conducted in very sort of accusatory terms where, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so, yeah, discourses of, of theft and things like that you know, that Elvis stole rock and roll or Mick Jagger stole rock and roll. And like, you know, these things I think are, um, I, the, those are pretty limited ways of, of, of thinking about things. And they're, yeah, like they're, they're kind of, it's, it's a way of, I, I think that that's not a good way into having the conversation, but I think, you know, um, one of the, I think rock music as a sort of construction has often been very defensive or evasive when it comes to conversations about race Um, and so i wanted to find a way into the conversation that into this topic that that didn't feel like it was blaming artists or sort of blaming um you know individuals but that rather that did respect and that did respect how much fluidity there was in this period but that like kind of what ends up happening is that these uh, people kind of end up falling back on these very long-standing beliefs about sort of innate differences in black and white expressive capacity and what, what sort of black music should be versus what white music should be. And these are ideas that have really, really deep roots in in American racial thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, so it's like, and I think to me that was uh, – the, the the notion that the reason that rock and roll becomes white is basically because of an almost, like, willful mishearing of the music in some quarters right. is more compelling to me than the justification that it became, happen, became white because, you know, ex artist was a thief or a racist or something like that. You know, most of the artists that I deal with in this book, like, I came away, both black and white artists, like, um, I actually came away with... Um, a real respect for how kind of open-minded they were. And, you know, certainly like dealing with the sixties, there's um, a, uh, you know, people are less, some, some of these artists are less savvy about talking about these issues as we expect <laughs> yeah. today. Yes. I mean, so yeah,
1: I'd love to talk about some of the stuff Mick Jagger says, right. Which, yeah. But, yeah. But what you're saying is very true, right?
0: Yeah. There was a real, like, you know, <laughs> there was a real commitment to something with a lot of these artists. And there was a sort of, um, you know, maybe like, It times very naive but a sort of utopian impulse of like really kind of thinking um yeah there was there was something that that some of these artists were really going for you know Mm -hmm. and it was like and i think that it's easy to be cynical about that um you know years after the fact but i think that i you know and i'm i'm certainly skeptical of it but i did i did want to try to recover some of it and you know think about that it's like it didn't necessarily have to be the way that it ended up being
1: right and And you say that at the beginning, I think towards the, towards the beginning of your book, you bring up the stones and you say that they really, the Rolling Stones really push this idea of like, why are you listening to us? Why? And and then you come back to it at the end, right? You talk about the stones at the end and just, we can we can, we can move the book around. We don't have to talk it right straight through, but, (laughs) but you talk about that idea, like the Rolling Stones, I think still get a lot of flack and. A lot of what they do is, can be, I mean, I like the Rolling Stones a lot. They're still Mm. really problematic. Oh, sure. Um, Sure. (laughs) But in no way, shape or form were they saying like, this is our music. Yeah. You know, so can you talk a bit about the the role of, the like, I think the Rolling Stones is is really nice too. Well, I don't know if nice is the word, but (laughs) I think one of the things that I got from reading your book and, or, and something that i think about often is that role of sort of violence and threat especially rock and roll right like i study yeah. i study punk so there's that idea of threat within like that culture but it started with the rock and roll this you know like we can mm-hmm. ha- you know that sort of like that being a public menace that hysteria that kind of yeah, thing yeah totally so can you talk a little bit about that and how you see that playing out it plays out you talk about it with hendrix you talk about mm-hmm. it with the rolling stones
0: yeah, I mean, so this was something that you know, with the Rolling Stones, like the 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 Rolling Stones, in a lot of ways are kind of the first rock rock and roll band that really embraces that sort of like public menace thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's like you know, certainly it had been applied to Elvis, it had been applied to some degree to the Beatles, although not not as uh, extreme. But the Stones are the first group that really like owns that Um, and they they own it from very early on and i you know and some of this too was not even really them it was they had they had this manager named andrew luke oldham who was extremely influential in crafting their image and he he really is you know oldham's idea was to turn them into uh the anti Beatles, essentially you know this was going to be they were going to be the uh you know if the Beatles were sort of cute and cuddly and and charming, <laughs> right. the stones were gonna be these like sullen uh you know miscreants like um which they weren't really you know like it's <laughs> like they were they were all just i mean if anything like I mean you know Mick Jagger was a student at the London School of Economics and like you know they were this was very packaged, but the stones right. didn't I don't think you know, and I think that there were times when they were probably irritated by it, but um they didn't they didn't ultimately really push against it um and certainly then kind of by the mid-60s they have embraced it and they have realized that this is sort of like part and parcel of of who they are and how the public sees them and that was very 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 tied up in their um in their sort of perceived proximity to to black music and their sort of like the fact that they were, and this is, you know, in the early coverage of the Rolling Stones, their their knowledge of, of blues and R and B music, their sort of obsessive relationship to it, comes up constantly, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the British press, uh, but also in the American press. But in England, like where where the, which where it's really, which is really where a lot of the sort of Stones as transgressive mythology originates like it's very you know in England in the in the early 1960s the 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 extent to which the stones were steeped in black American blues music was very unusual like it was like you know this was something or it was presented as such at least by the by the British press um and yeah you know they were these they were kids you know they were they were young um they you know had long hair uh and yeah and that was something that and, and you know similarly to and it's interesting, like you you know, bringing up Hendrix. Like Hendrix, who comes, you know, who kind of bursts onto the scene about three years after the Stones do, um, but sort of gets gets a lot of the same treatment leveled at him. Um, but it's actually it's almost the reverse. Like with Hendrix, it's almost this like, oh, he's this black guy who's playing this white music for these white crowds. You know, that's how he's perceived. And so there's this for both of them. There is a way that the sort of perceived crossing of kind of racial and musical boundaries gets bound up in this sort of idea of dangerousness. Um, And obviously, like, sex is really, really tied into that. And certainly in the early coverage of the Rolling Stones, like, I mean, one of the most famous headlines ever about the Rolling Stones is from Melody Maker in 1964. And it's, uh, would you let your sister go out with a Rolling Stone? Um, that was like this blaring banner headline and and you know it was this story about how bad they were, you know how 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 sort of dangerous and threatening, and like it's just like everything that's embedded in that you know it's just like obviously it's like there's you know echoes of kind of like miscegenationist rhetoric um certainly like i mean there's just so much uh kind of tied up in that in that um in that headline that becomes extremely powerful and popular gets repeated over and over again american publications pick up on it and run it as well it becomes like this it's really iconic piece of stone's coverage
1: right it becomes a sort of moral panic that we need exactly. to stay yeah. away yeah. Right. yeah and it's interesting because you bring up sort of hendrix too and i i always find it interesting with hendrix is he did not grow up like dirt poor in the South, right? He grew up in a pretty stable middle-class family, you know, got a good relationship with his father, went into the army. And we don't look at that history, right? We just, we, so, and he, and he also sort of paid his dues playing in bands. He didn't only play for white audience with all white musicians. And so that Hendrix myth, can you talk a bit about Hendrix and, um, and your thoughts on Hendrix and your research? Sure, yeah.
0: So I would say that, like, honestly, so for me, it's interesting. Like, um, Hendrix, for me, was probably the hardest musician to write about in this book. Um, And the reason for that is because, and this isn't a term that I I use very often, but and I don't even think I necessarily say it in the book, but, um, I mean, he is a genius in this way that other musicians that I've written about, I mean, all the musicians I write about are incredibly talented and just like you know I, i'm in awe of the the music that they made hendrix is like really on a plane that is it, it's just pretty <laughs> incredible and it's like and the thing about hendrix is like it makes him difficult to write about because there's something that he there is something to hendrix that is so unique and there's something to him that is like wow there's like you know i mean like the greatest artists it's like you know you can pile up the influences and they still don't explain what you're left with. You know, there's just something, there was something to Hendrix where he was hearing music in a way that no one had heard it before. He was hearing his instrument in a way that no one had heard it before. Um, And just, you know, it's just astounding what he was able to accomplish in those few years. So there's this like, yeah. So in a way he was really challenging to write about because it's so hard to fit someone like that into a into a mold you know into a into an archetype or anything he just resists everything and i think that and i started to appreciate in some ways like the the problem of writers who are trying to write about him in the time at the time because you know it's like what do you really say about this guy there is something that is you know for as much as hendrix was exoticized like he was really exotic like Mm -hmm. he just was like i mean there was something um yeah but he is something that it's like you do see that kind of like I mean, certainly in the British press, uh, you know, as as many people know, Hendrix really kind of rises to stardom initially in England. Um, right. He goes to London in the mid '60s uh, and becomes a sensation in the UK in 1966. And it's not till '67 that he sort of comes back to the states and becomes an international star. But um, yeah, early British press coverage of Hendrix is full of stuff about how, like, oh, you know, he's like, I mean, like. Saying that he came from like a Mississippi Delta background, which is totally bogus. You know, he's from <laughs> Seattle. Um, <laughs> but there's also this element that's like Hendrix himself was known for not being super straight with interviewers, like much in the same way that that, that Bob Dylan was. You know, right. like it's he played with these. I mean, Hendrix too was someone who really, really actively resisted any any sort of categorization, and was known for giving really opaque and kind of uh weird answers to questions about his music uh you know really a really great interview in a lot of ways because he was so funny and smart and just like had this really wonderful way way of talking but like not the most revelatory guy in terms of like him him actually being uh, straight with, with with people about how he was conceiving of his of his work. I mean he, I mean in some ways he was revelatory. He just spoke about it in ways that are um, are sort of uh, almost incredulous in terms of being someone reading them. Um, but he is uh yeah I mean it's he he was really difficult to write about. And there is a, a way that you want to preserve the uniqueness of someone like that rather than trying to sort of fit him into um, a kind of broader lineage or something like that because there is something about hendrix where he really does break the mold um and yeah and it's like seeing writers grapple with that um there's certainly so much writing about hendrix during his lifetime and a lot of it is kind of cringe inducing looking back on it because of all of the stereotypes it plays upon Um, and yet at the same time i think there was something about him that was incredibly hard to write about so people tried to grab on something anything that was familiar
1: Right, and it makes sense that we, you know, you exoticize him, but yet he is right. He still yeah. holds true to be like what most musicians, if not all, guitar players say, the greatest or one of the greatest rock and roll guitar players ever. Yeah, right?
0: absolutely. Yeah, and,
1: and so yeah, so how, like, what do you talk about then if you can't? <laughs> you yeah. So sometimes that that idea of race or what you know he's playing before a wh- white audience. Makes sense, and so and you mentioned this idea that Hendrix sort of went to the UK, and that's where he sort of started to play and started to come out. And so one of your in the beginning of the book you talk about the British invasion, and I think mm-hmm. that that is a really important element to this, right? So Hendrix goes to the other side of the Atlantic, but right. also this move for the Beatles. Um, Dusty Springfield, people mm. coming over here as well. So could you, and you sort of talk about for you, four elements of the British invasion. And so can you, or the myths of the British invasion, yeah. but could you talk a little bit about that and what use why you think the British invasion is really important to this story?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the British invasion is a really, you know, obviously it's a very famous concept. Um, and it's sort of like become, you know, the concept being basically that, you know, the Beatles break in the States and, really, February 1964, that's when Ed Sol- the Ed Sullivan show is, um, although they start breaking a little bit earlier than that. Um, and then, you know, kind of after the Beatles, it's just this deluge of, of British bands. Yeah, the Stones, um, you know, uh, the Animals, the Kinks, the Who later, uh, you know, um, uh, just so many, you know, this sort of flood of bands. And so there's this sort of, like... Uh, Yeah, but there's – and there's some truth to this. You know, like there is – I mean, there really had – the Beatles are so important in terms of opening up that line. You know, there really had not been – British musicians had made very little impact on the American pop charts before the Beatles. Um, And so, you know, and then all of a sudden, like, the charts are kind of filled with British musicians. But there's a way that the British invasion concept – you know, this is something that's certainly like – classic rock radio, we'll have, like, British Invasion Weekends, you know, there's whole big fan books about, you know, there's just, like, a huge, it's just a real, um, powerful concept in sort of rock mythology, um, but I... I I don't know. For me, it's sort of like there's, there are so many differences between these bands and there's so many like, you know, for, for American audiences in the sixties who really didn't know very much about England, like there was this sort of tendency that it's like, Oh, all these groups are sort of coming from the same scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and certainly, I mean, the most, the most obvious example of this is like, you know, the most biggest dichotomy, the most powerful dichotomy in rock, in rock history is probably the Beatles versus stones thing. Right. Um, and the Beatles and Stones actually had, like, really very, very little to do with each other. They were really, you know, it's like they came from very different backgrounds. The Stones are from London. The Beatles are from Liverpool. Um, they were steeped in very different influences. Um, they had, I think, very different ambitions, uh, particularly early on. Um, and, yeah, but one of the things that the British invasion myth, like, allowed for this idea that there was this kind of monolith of British bands that came in to the state. And it's also, it happens at this moment where in, in sort of historiography or particularly like popular history, um, there's this idea that sort of American rock and roll was kind of on life support before the Beatles that there was, you know, after, um, you know, Elvis is, uh, you know, by the end of the fifties, like Buddy Holly's dead, Little Richards quit secular music. Um, Chuck Berry's about to go to prison. Elvis is in the army. Um, and there's this sort of like that, like there's nothing happening in the U.S. besides, and then the Beatles come along and sort of, and this is like, it like you know, Lester Bangs, the great music critic, right. rock critic, um, gave voice to this in a uh, uh, very, inf- very famous essay that he wrote about the British invasion for the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll, um, which I mean, it's just. Like, it's a nice story, but it's totally untrue. <laughs> like, it's like there was a like, huge <laughs> amount of really cool stuff happening in po- American pop music. Like, I mean, 1963 <laughs> is it, alone is like a huge year in American pop music. And this is before the Beatles show up. But um, yeah, and so that was like, so I was sort of interested. And the other thing that that is important about the to sort of dispel about the british invasion is that it wasn't simultaneous like it's like it wasn't like the beatles break through and then suddenly there's all these bands it's actually (laughs) particularly the stones it's like it took the stones a while to break through in the states like it was the the stones first american tour was a disaster like they were miserable no one came to their shows uh you know it took them it's not until june 1965 i think that the stones have their first american number one hit and that was uh i can't get no satisfaction uh at that point the beatles had had eight american number one hits so it was really like this was you know it was it wasn't like the stones were an over the beatles to american audiences appeared to be an overnight success right. um the stones were absolutely not the stones were you know uh a band that had a lot of frustrations breaking through in the U.S. Um, and really didn't have, it, it wasn't until a bit later that the Stones established themselves as a real international commercial force.
1: Right. And then so you talk about then with that, right, this sort of British invasion mm-hmm. and, and in the music world, like from 63 to 65 is a long time. Right, mm-hmm. like
0: it. Oh, certainly. Right,
1: yeah. and then you bring in the Beatles and their connection and their relationship with Motown, which mm-hmm. I thought was this really interesting, and the role that um, Motown played with sort of create like I don't think creating the Beatles is the word I want to what I want to say, but that relationship. And so, can you talk a little bit about that relationship?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the Beatles were extremely influenced by Motown. Motown and the Beatles, really, like, their success stories are actually pretty intertwined, both, uh, you know, both artistically, but also kind of chronologically. Um, so Motown, you know, starts in the late 50s. Uh, that's, you know, Barry Gordy founds right. Motown Records in the late 50s. But it's really not until 63. 60- three that Motown starts really taking off. It's like 63 is a big year for Motown. Um, they, have, they have more top 10 hits in that year than they' had, had in their previous few years combined. Um, 64 is an even bigger year for Motown. Uh, but 63 is the one where it's sort of like they really start uh, it really starts coming together for them. Um, and that's the same year that the Beatles uh, you know, take off in the UK. Um, and 63 is the year of, of, of British Beatlemania. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, be, uh, the, so the, the Beatles obviously uh, were very, very influenced by, by Motown music. Um, th- with the Beatles, which came out uh, in the U.K. on November 22nd, 1963, the same day as the Kennedy assassination. Uh, <laughs> with the Beatles uh, contained three covers of Motown songs. So it contained it, it had money which is Money, That's What I Want, which is the first single ever released on Motown. Um, They covered uh, Please, Mr. Postman, Mm -hmm. um, which is the Marvelettes hit from 1960, which was actually the first number one that Motown Records ever had. Um, And then they covered You've Really Got a Hold on Me by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, uh, which had actually come out in 1963. So this was like, here are the Beatles covering this song that had come out a few months before with the Beatles, which is pretty extraordinary, you know, that this was, Mm -hmm. um, so that's how current it was. And that's how sort of up on, up on this music they were. And particularly at a time when Motown wasn't big in the UK at that point, that was something that it was like, you had to be a real connoisseur to be seeking out Motown records, which the Beatles obviously, obviously were in the UK. The Motown wasn't particularly interested in the UK market at that point, um, they're just their records weren't widely available. It wasn't until 1965 that Motown really becomes a, a big success in the UK. Um, and then, yeah, so there, obviously this big influence of of, of Motown on the Beatles. Um, but this becomes like a sort of, uh, it becomes a real mutual admiration um, thing going on between these two entities, Motown artists became very quickly, uh, very taken with the Beatles and their success. There were, you know, lots of uh, photos and stories of Beatles and Motown artists hanging out together. Um, and there were also throughout the 60s, a lot of uh, really, really great Motown covers of Beatles, Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of the ones I write about in my book are Marvin Gaye's cover of Yesterday and Stevie right. Wonder's fantastic cover of We Can Work It Out from mm-hmm. 1970. I lost you. Oh,
1: sorry. Oh, oh no, you just said Stevie Wonder. Oh, Stevie Wonder's <laughs> cover of "We Can Work It Out" from right. nineteen seventy. Yeah. Right, and and you talk too a bit about like the role that with Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, and how not only musically, but then how they were able to sort of push themselves to be more autonomous. I don't know if that's the word I want to use, but yeah, to, because of the Beatles, they got. They were allowed. They um. They they went for a little more power and a little more control over what they were doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was something that, um, yeah. So Motown Records, uh, you know, was a famously controlling operation. Barry Gordy, the head of Motown Records, was just had a real kind of. Um, uh, almost kind of tyrannical hold on 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 his label and and his artists like he just was uh you know Motown was completely vertically integrated uh and um yeah like i mean this was it led to a lot of bitterness for motown artists in in years since of people who felt like they were really kind of screwed over mm-hmm. um for their for their labor um you know certainly with things like publishing and royalties uh artists did not have Particularly good deals with Motown. Um, Motown artists for a long time were not allowed to have agents, um, which is pretty pretty <laughs> incredible. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye both um, are are two are both really important. Marvin Gaye probably even more so than than Stevie. The Marvin Gaye in 1970 decides that he wants to record the album that will go on to be "What's Going On," which is right. obviously a landmark of of uh sort of 70s pop music um barry gordy didn't want him to do it he was he was nervous about a political album he's nervous about albums as a form in general he felt Mm -hmm. that that wasn't that wasn't really where motown's bread was buttered uh but marvin gaye keeps pushing and pushing you know threaten threatening uh, to sue and legal action and things like that gordy finally relents Um, And allows Marvin Gaye to record What's Going On, which of course becomes a huge hit, um, very successful album for Motown. Stevie Wonder, um, who in 1970, who turns 21 years old in 1971, he sees all this happening. By by Stevie Wonder's 21st birthday, Marvin Gaye is, uh, what's going on is already out and, and doing really well. Stevie Wonder basically goes to Barry Gordy and says he wants to, you know, he wants to void his contract, um, which he, I guess he was able to do having turned 21. Right. Um, and renegotiate. Uh, he wants complete artistic control and um, control over his publishing, too, which was extremely, um, no one had ever asked for that, or no one had ever gotten that from Motown before. Um, and Barry Gordy, I think, you know, wisely realizing the, Talent that he has with Stevie Wonder <laughs> agrees to this, and this is really like yeah, which you know sets in motion basically Stevie Wonder becoming the probably the the dominant commercial and critical artist of the nineteen seventies. Just like you know, um, and yeah, and th- there was a way though that the the Beatles are sort of implicated in this because of the fact that the Beatles in nineteen sixty six um, had renegotiated their own contract with Capitol Records um, to yeah give them a huge amount of autonomy over over their work um and you know that was what allowed them to make sergeant pepper um and right. allowed them to make their their late 60s music and that that had reverberations across the whole recording industry so i absolutely think that artists like marvin gaye and stevie wonder looked at that example and were like you know I want that like it's like that this was something that uh yeah so I think that there there's, there is a connection there
1: right and what's interesting in in reading your book is just the amount of re remaking of songs, these co- covering of songs that happened within this sort of shorter period of time. So we well, let's talk about the ladies for a little while, right? Sure, like, yeah. right? You talk about Aretha Franklin and Janis Joplin and Dusty Springfield. And I love, well, it was like the women, so I loved it anyway. But this idea of what is soul and the fact that these women, so I want to talk a little bit about that idea of like who has soul, what is soul, but you also sort of push with them just how much they recorded each other right or Mm -hmm. they you know and which is really fascinating in such a short it wasn't like 10 years later i'm gonna make this you know a remake of this song it's like you know like you said like three months or a year later so Mm -hmm. could you talk a bit about um your that idea the idea of soul and also the sort of this idea of like um the the role that these women played in remaking songs and
0: yeah certainly so Yeah, so in the late 1960s, you know, um, really started... I mean, you know, it's hard to say when exactly it starts, but certainly 67, 68, 69, 70, um, you start to see a real rise in um, discussions of soul as a concept, Um, you know, musical soul, uh, and sometimes just sort of soul even more generally than that. Um, And this question of who has soul, who doesn't have soul... um, you know, if if soul is something that you're born with, or if soul is something you can pick up, you know, can you can you learn soul? Uh, <laughs> and these were, you know, as, as you might imagine, were like really like basically very uh, thinly coded ways of talking about race and sort of mm-hmm. racial racial authenticity. And you know, do do white performers have a, a right to perform black music. Um, you know, what are the sort of ethical obligations that go along with that type, that sort of performance? I mean, they were really kind of like, a lot of these were basically discussions over what we would, I think, now call cultural appropriation. Um, right. And, uh, yeah, and, the, and two flashpoints around this discussion were Aretha Franklin, who um, really uh, explodes into stardom in, in 1967 uh and in in june of 68 she's on the cover of time magazine um this really striking cover and the headline of the the cover story is the sound of soul uh and it's this whole big article about soul and uh and sort of aretha as the embodiment of this concept um and then it and the other flashpoint was is janis Joplin who's someone who who emerges almost a, a precisely the same time um And as someone who, you know, has this very spectacular performance style, um, she just commands a tremendous amount of attention, becomes an absolute sensation, um, both musically and also just sort of a a media sensation. Um, And she immediately, almost immediately, becomes, like, very controversial as this sort of, you know, this white uh, female blues singer um, who... uh, you know, was somewhat prone to shoot her mouth off in interviews <laughs> about things. <laughs> just a little, um, yeah. And just was like, you know, was a was a was a real larger than life persona. You know, this was someone who was like, I mean, Janice Joplin was just a, a huge star, like a star in the sort of in in the almost sort of like uh, um, the the most basic sense. Like she was just, an, uh, I think she was an electrifying personality. Um, and yeah, but this was so, uh, I mean, so I write a lot about that history of those two artists um, and, and the way that they were often compared to each other. Like, they were often, like, which is something that I feel like is, we now wouldn't think to put those artists in in next to each other. But oh, in, in the late 60s, they were really, like, there were a lot of people who were like Aretha versus Janice kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and, yeah, and a lot of it had to do with these, these questions of who was, you know, who was authentic, who was is, who is really soulful and who wasn't. You know, is Janis Joplin soul music? Um, and, uh, yeah, and then, like, the question of songs, like, one of the things that was really interesting, too, and I it, also in that chapter, write about Dusty Springfield, yes. who's a great um, white British R&B singer um, who's, who's much less well-known in the States. She's certainly – she's not totally obscure or anything, but she's not as big a name as – Aretha or or Janis Joplin but who is someone who was kind of this you know a third party to all of this um, who makes a really wonderful album in 1968 called Dusty in Memphis that contains probably Dusty's most famous song Son of a Preacher Man um, which is a song that's uh, written originally for Aretha Franklin um and Aretha Franklin didn't want to record it because she thought it was its content was too risque she ultimately does record it but only after Dusty has had a hit with it um and there's just so much overlap in terms of uh the sort of songs that people are performing like one of janice draplin's most famous songs is Piece of My Heart um which was a cover of a song of of piece of my heart that was originated by aretha franklin's sister irma franklin in Mm -hmm. 1967 Um, and then also you know aretha franklin who like one of the things that um, i think aretha franklin maybe doesn't get enough credit for i mean uh, obviously aretha franklin gets gets a lot of credit for a lot of things um all deserved but i think something (laughs) that we don't talk enough about is that you know, I think Aretha Franklin is maybe the greatest cover artist of all time. Like, it's like Aretha Franklin's <laughs> covers of other people's music is just totally extraordinary. In fact, I wouldn't even say maybe. I think she's she's absolutely, um, you know, just thinking about. I mean, uh, you know, her most famous recording probably is her cover of Otis Otis Redding's "Respect,"
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then, uh, yeah, then but you know, in the throughout the '60s um, and into the '70s, you know, she makes. Uh, she has an amazing cover of um, The Beatles' Eleanor Rigby, uh, an amazing cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, um, and, I mean, just so, so many. Uh, she covers The Weight by The Band. Um, I mean, just the list goes. She covered Satisfaction by The Rolling Stones. Um, <laughs> And yeah, and thinking about that sort of thing too, like it's like, okay, where do you where do you put the role of of, of songwriters and where do you put the role of songs in all this? Like that it's like thinking about soul and thinking is always about performance really. It's like a very you know, thinking about like musical authenticity often takes root at the at the idea of performance, but it doesn't really often consider it's like, well, where is the material coming from? And who are who are the other people on the on the recording, you know, like, it's like who, where, yeah, it's like, uh, so that's, that's a rambling answer, but that, that's that chapter.
1: (laughs) No, it's fine because I'm still, I'm still sort of um, trying to let settle with myself, this idea, like when you talk about these women, they, like everybody else wrote their own songs, right? But these women, these three women, the three women that you pick, which it makes sense that you pick these three, right? Yeah. They don't, we, we, I think sometimes we don't think about like who wrote the song. Like did they write they yeah. didn't write their songs, right? Whatever they're doing, they're not right. You know, what it, and what does that mean to not be to be for yeah. me I'm like pushing this like they're also women and they're also not songwriters, right? Yeah. <laughs> But there's I mean, other they're... women songwriters, but they're just you know there's women songwriters that are writing songs for other folks. But... Oh, absolutely,
0: yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is so. One, this is one of the things I write about in that chapter is that like, so there's idea that's like come about in, um, like, like in rock music in particular. There's this real premium placed on like who do you write your own songs? Yes. Do you write your own songs? Um, and you know, I think that that's like, it's kind of a uh, uh, I don't know what the there's like a misplaced importance on that you know that it's like one of the things i wanted to talk about in that chapter is that like so one of the reasons that they're not writing their own songs is because the music industry was so sexist at that point that they're really like the notion of a female singer songwriter i mean frankly like the notion of a male singer songwriter even in that era you know the beatles are another reason the beatles are important is that they they wrote their own stuff and certainly like um there have been other you know, um, performers who'd written their own material, uh, you know, Chuck Berry wrote all his own material, Buddy Holly wrote his own material, but like, you know, Elvis didn't write his own. No, few and far Um, between. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, um, and so that, that was a relatively new idea that you would have, you know, the Beatles being a self-contained band that wrote their own songs. Um, and, you know, certainly like a place like Motown, most Motown artists didn't write their own songs. Like it's like you know there was a there was a whole songwriting staff at Motown. I mean there were exceptions. Smokey Robinson wrote wrote a lot of his own music. Um, Stevie Wonder started to write more and more of his own of his own music. But you know a performer like Marvin Gaye wasn't particularly encouraged uh, to write songs. Um, and uh, yeah, so this was something there. There was a way that this, and particularly for female performers, this was something that it was like. I mean, Aretha did write some of her stuff. She has co-writing credit on on some of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, there was this real sense in the music industry in that period of that was, you know, women sang songs written for them. Um, and there absolutely were female songwriters. I mean, probably the big, you know, the most iconic of this period is Carole King, who writes mm. everything. You know, right. she wrote, uh, you make me feel like a natural woman for Aretha. Um But, yeah, but it's not until a little bit later that Carol King is able to step out and and inhabit that role of female singer-songwriter, you know, in the way that she's, you know, with Tapestry. Right, yeah. Yeah. And Um,
1: Tapestry came out when? In the early 70s? Early 70s, 70s. yeah.
0: Um, And so this is like, so, yeah, you're still in this period of, um, yeah, where that wasn't a... like really, I don't want to say not a possibility, but that was, that was itself a sort of fraught position. Um, but I also just wanted to, wanted to yeah, in that chapter, kind of draw attention to the fact that it's like, there's a lot of different forms of, like, really great musical artistry. And, like, not all of them have to do with, like, do you write your own songs? You right. know, like, it's like, I mean, like, it's like, <laughs> I mean, Aretha Franklin's music is light years better than most people that have written their own songs. <laughs>
1: right. No, and, and, like, that idea of, like, you don't need to write your own songs to have, so- right, that, yeah. like, toying with that idea of soil. soil I can't soul um, is really fascinating but it just made me start to think about that idea of like when right so I thought of the band I thought of was heart right like when do women in rock start right that big sort of like Carol King was like the singer songwriter Joni Mitchell the singer you know the, the it's that like let's not call them Let's not call it rock and roll. Let's call it yeah, something else, absolutely. which is what you really were getting at with this sort of idea of soul, too. Right. Like if it has souls at rock and roll or is it or do we call it R&B or do we call it something else? Right. Um, so just not to leave them out, you start out and sort of um, with this sort of birth of the 60s with Sam Cooke and Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. which i i I love that um juxtaposition of both of them, right, because this idea of like the black authenticity and the folk authenticity and mm-hmm. and sort of this creation of Dylan, and you mentioned it early on, but that idea like did Dylan quit being folk when he plugged in right yeah. and that that whole thing so could you talk a little bit about maybe the birth of the sixties and why you chose Dylan and um Cook
0: I mean Sam Cook. I mean, just from a totally personal perspective, like Sam Cooke is probably my favorite singer of all time. And, uh, so when I was really starting to work on this project, um, that was some of the earliest material that I, that I wrote for this. Um, particularly the Sam Cooke material, because like, yeah, one of the things I was really struck by is how little has been written about Sam Mm -hmm. Cooke. Um, he's someone who, you know, there's really only been, only been two full length books that have been written about him. Um, And, uh, you know, there's been now there's a a very good academic article that was published about him a few years ago. But that's really the only um, pretty significant piece of Sam Cooke's uh, academic scholarship. Um, You know, he 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 gets touched upon a lot by places. But it's like, you know, um, history of, you know, histories of R&B in the 60s often treat him as sort of a precursor or outlier figure, um, which is a little weird considering like Sam Cooke. Uh, dies in late 1964. So he was very present in the 60s, you know. And, yeah, so I sort of got interested in sort of like, why, well, like, why don't we, why is, why haven't more people written about Sam Cooke? Like, why, you know, Sam Cooke is a really important musician and someone who is, uh, his contributions to to 60s music are massive. You know, mm-hmm. as someone who is, he's the first singer to cross over from gospel to pop. Like, it's like, you know, and do so spectacularly. And, I mean, that's so important. Like, that is, like, the commercial blueprint for so much of 60s R&B <laughs> is that particular crossover. And, uh, yeah, and he's someone who's often credited with, because of that crossover, with sort of, quote-unquote, inventing soul music. Um, and yet he's someone who often gets sort of left out of the a lot of the conventional histories of soul music or, again, treated as sort of like a forerunner. And uh, and then and I just became very interested in the story of Sam Cooke uh, – who, who in 1963 was totally obsessed with uh, Bob Dylan's "Blown in the Wind" and, mm-hmm. and and wrote "A Change Is Gonna Come," which is probably this to, to these days Sam Cooke's most famous composition. Right. He wrote it really as kind of a response to uh, to "Blown in the Wind." He was you know d- very inspired by that song, um, and so that got me thinking about Bob Dylan in the in the early 60s and sort of like at that moment. And Bob Dylan, who's someone who's the most written about popular musician probably ever, you know, this is like Bob Dylan's got hundreds of books written about him and sort of the commonalities and the similarities and differences between these two figures and this sort of brief, but really significant moment of overlap that happens with these two songs and sort of this, the ways that, that, that Sam Cooke and Dylan have sort of functioned in the, in the genres that they supposedly represent, you know, Cook on, cook as as soul and Dylan as, as rock, because Dylan, you know, there's also a very kind of common saw that, uh, you know, like a rolling stone is the, is the moment that kind of rock music becomes serious. It's sort of like the birth of the birth of rock as a form distinct from rock and roll. Um, you know, and it's like, this is so, you know, Sam cook, you know, leaves gospel to go to pop and Dylan really leaves folk to go to pop. You know, these are things that happen. Like, it's like these, both these artists make these moves and yet they get coded in very different ways. Like one Mm -hmm. of the things I think that one of the reasons Sam Cooke doesn't get written about that much is that there's a discomfort with his crossover. There's a discomfort with his, with his pop side. You know, this is like people want to write about a change that's going to come because it's so, um, it's so I mean it's just a perfect piece of music, first of all, but it's also like, you know, so politically righteous and you know, it's just it's got like it's everything we wanna, you know, every it's it's like it's like the the, the comfortable Sam Cook. And so mm-hmm. is his gospel material. You know, his gospel material is just so so beautiful and powerful. But uh yeah, like it's like his his pop material, which people don't really know I think a lot of people don't really know what to do with since it's a little bit um uh, I don't know what the, what the right word is. You know, it's so, it's so market conscious. It's so, it's so calculated and things like that. But like, it's like, as opposed to seeing that as a compromise on Sam Cooke's part, like, I mean, to me, it's actually speaks to just how, how versatile of an ar- artist he was and how sort of how ambitious he was, how, how incredibly adept he was at realizing his ambition. And I think that for someone like Sam Cook, like, the music that he made in that vein was just as important to him as the music Mm -hmm. that he made that's important, that other people have deemed important, you know? Uh, Like, it's like, and like, yeah, why do we withhold that recognition from him? What is it about that music that makes people uncomfortable? Um, And yeah, so that's that's sort of what I wrote about in that chapter.
1: And do you think... This is, and I don't know the answer to this, but in reading, and I think this happens a lot, especially in this time in, in music, that a lot of this, like you talk about rock and, and violence, but a lot of these folks died in some violent ways, right? Or violence mm-hmm. happened. And so do you think some of the Sam Cooke stuff has to do with the circumstances in which he died? Or do you think that's a whole separate
0: um, I mean, that's a really I really know. good question. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, so Sam Cooke, yeah, I mean, dies under very mysterious circumstances. He, uh, you know, he shot to death in a seedy motel in Los Angeles in December of 1964. It's a murder that has really never been adequately explained. Um, uh, a woman confessed to it. Uh, and she was a hotel employee confessed to the murder, but she... Claim that Sam Cook, she thought Cook was a robber, uh, so she the, basically the um, the shooting was chalked up as, you know, sort of a combination of self defense and accident. Uh, so no one, you know, no one was ever uh, brought to justice for his for his murder. Um, and yeah, it's like, like it's a weird, uh, uh, it's it's a very weird circumstance. Like it's like you know to this day. There's a lot of mystery there, you know. No one's really sure what exactly he was doing at that hotel. Yeah, um, there's many
1: stories. There's many kind, you know. There's many uh, theories to what happened. Yeah,
0: exactly. There's so many theories. Yeah, and I and I do think that at the time, um, yeah, there was a way that people didn't know how to talk about what what happened there. I mean, people still don't know how to talk about it because they don't know what happened. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a way. It is really tragic. I mean, it's so tragic. Um, and, yeah, I mean, certainly the, like, the fact that his life was cut short um, at that moment, um, you know, when he really is, I think, starting to move into really interesting and new directions. I mean, throughout Sam Cooke's whole career, he's moving in interesting and new directions. But, you know, it's A Change That's Gonna Come wasn't released as a single until after his death, Um and uh yeah it actually reminds me of someone who I who I don't get to write about that much in my book but um it, uh is Otis Redding who right. dies in in December of 1967. Um and Otis Redding was only 26 when he died. And you know, he dies uh and he's he's his music was moving in really uh interesting directions too. He was someone who I think you know, if he's one of the great like you know what might have been um Stories. I mean, there's so much tragic early death in in the '60s, but in a lot of ways, like someone like Cook, and particularly someone like Otis Redding, where there's something so senseless about it. You know, it's not it's not a drug overdose. It's not it's not a you know a sort of self destruction that ends up happening. It's uh you know it's something even more even weirder and more fluky. And so there's something about that that's really. I mean, I put Buddy Holly in
1: that. I was just going to say that that sounds like a very Buddy Holly kind of. So we've been talking for a while because I don't (laughs) want to keep you forever, but I could keep talking about it. But what's your, so where are you going next? Do you have another project in the works or? Yeah, I sort of got like, like so I
0: haven't really started writing anything
1: yet. I do have another project in the works. I'm like a little
0: hesitant to. That's fine. You don't (laughs) need to. That's fine. I didn't
1: know if you had something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I do have something. It's like. It's a little different than this project. It's still music-related, and it's going to be a little bit more recent, like a little bit more contemporary. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm not going backwards. I'm going forwards. Uh, But it'll still mostly be a historical project. I'm still part of my hesitation of talking about it is that i'm not entirely quite sure what it is just yet
1: right but there's still lots to talk about even more recent with uh music and oh absolutely race and rock well thank you so much for talking with me i really appreciate it and just again this was an interview with jack hamilton who wrote just around midnight rock and roll and the racial imagination thank you
0: thanks so much for having me on